a copy of God's Word to John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is the text we will be in together this evening. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It should be on page 1,648 of your pew Bibles. As you turn there, let me just once again state what a privilege it is to be here with you all. It's a joy. And so I hope to be able to meet some of you after service and shake your hand. Just say thank you again for inviting me to be with you this evening. John chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12. Hear now God's word for us this evening. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from, 30, from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This was the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and the brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days." This is God's word. Would you join me in prayer as we go before this word and ask for our Father's help? Father, we draw before you now, longing to hear you speak. God, we trust and we know that you indeed do speak through your word by your spirit. And so we ask, would you do just that? Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear hearts of fertile soil to receive anything that you might have for us here tonight. And God, would you help us to remember who is speaking here in this moment? We pray, God, would you so shape our hearts that our affections for Christ might rise and he might be glorified. We ask this all in his name. Amen. There is something about weddings that brings tremendous joy in all of us. There's something intrinsic to the very nature of weddings that makes us smile and makes us joyful. I don't know how long it's been since you've been to a wedding, but I recently received an invitation to a wedding. I don't know if you've ever opened one of those recently, but literally like seven things spills out of the envelope. As they cram in different cards and RSVPs and the envelope that you send it back into, and there's always a beautiful picture that you know took them like 20 tries to get right, And yet in that small little glimpse, they're trying to show you the joy that they have, and they're inviting you to come be a part of it. There's something about weddings that is just so great and that we love so dearly. Here in our text, we are at a wedding. We're in a wedding. 
The scene is very clear. There is a wedding going on. We don't know the bridegroom. We don't know the bride. All we know is that there is a wedding going on, and Jesus and his disciples, as well as his mother, are invited. They have RSVP'd, and they are there at the scene. And what John is trying to do in our text is he's trying to see us, show us that there is a tremendous joy to be found in seeing what's happening in this small little episode in the gospel according to John. And yet, it may not be the initial thing you think. For while we are looking at a particular wedding here and now, the joy John wants us to see is not primarily anything to do about this wedding. And so what I'd like to do is work through our text here together, looking at the story that John is telling, and to look at what is the joy of the wedding that John wants us to see. And we will look at the text together to do that. So if you have a copy of God's Word open, follow with me as we work through this text. In our text, we see that John is telling us about an incredible scene. No one can take away from the fact that this is an incredible miracle that's happening. In fact, you are probably well familiar, even if you haven't read this text often, you're probably well familiar with the miracle at Cana. You're probably well familiar with the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. This is a miracle that gets cited and recited often by Christians and by the church. And yet, we want to ask the question, is there more going on in this scene than simply a charlatan's trick? Is it simply, I can turn water to wine, or is there something more going on here? In fact, Jesus is indeed demonstrating something for our eyes. Look with me at the text. John begins in verses 1 and 2 by setting the scene. If you were watching a movie, this is the part in the movie where all is well, everyone's happy, there is no conflict yet. You're just being introduced with the characters. Here in the first two verses, all we're getting is getting a feel for the territory. What we see is on the third day, a wedding is taking place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother is there, so is Jesus and his disciples. So far, so good. It would seem that this is just going to be a happy scene with Jesus, his mother, his disciples, and some friend that they must know, some wedding they've been invited to. And yet... What we see in the text is there is quickly what we call conflict introduced, verse 3. In verse 3, we find the first kind of spoil to this beautiful picture of the wedding. Verse 3 says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Well, that sounds like a problem, doesn't it? Depending on how you might view alcohol, in the biblical times, a wedding would have been loaded with wine. It would have been absolutely filled with the consumption of wine. It would have been a a joyful celebration of abundance as the attendees of this wedding would have had drink and been merry and enjoyed the fellowship of each other. For Mary to come up to Jesus and to articulate that there is no more wine is a devastating blow to the wedding. It's as if, if you walked up in a wedding today and said, we don't have a cake for the couple to cut. Or all the food is just gone. We don't know what happened to it. But there's no food for any of the guests to eat. This is one of those moments that makes you sweat because you're the one responsible and you're thinking, how am I going to fix this problem? Jesus in this moment is approached by his mother and she says, there is no more wine. 
and now we have our conflict. We have our rising tension in the story that John is telling us. What is going to happen with the wine? Well, the story doesn't immediately resolve itself. In fact, we get another point of conflict in verse 4. If you're reading out of the NIV, it reads, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Now, the language of dear woman can sometimes sound somewhat ambiguous to us. If you're reading a text such as the ESV, it just shows Jesus addressing her as woman, which can sound rather blunt and rather harsh. Jesus here is speaking, as Don Carson says it, almost with like a southern ma'am. He looks at his mother and says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Now, we don't want to skate over this too quickly. In verse 4, we very clearly have Jesus rebuking his mother. There's a very clear pushback on Jesus to say, why are you asking me for anything? And he qualifies it at the end of verse 4 by saying, my time has not yet come. And so church, recognize this as we are hearing the stories. We're watching the movie play out before our eyes. We have this beautiful scene of a wedding And we have Jesus and his mother. And the mother tells us the conflict. And Jesus responds with more conflict. There's more tension introduced into the story. Not only is there no wine to deal with. We also have this question in our minds of. What does Jesus mean when he says my time has not yet come? What does that mean? Now we might be able to begin to think ahead. But recognize here in this moment. Jesus' response would not have landed with the, the crowd around him. What does Jesus mean? What does it mean that his time has not yet come? Or the hour is not at hand as he often says. Well we have to look into the story to figure out. So here at the end of verse 4. We have two sources of tension. First there is no wine. And second There is this mild rebuke by Jesus to his mother that his hour has not come. His time has not yet arrived. And so as we go through the story, we're asking ourselves the question, how will these tensions be resolved? What's going to happen to fix this conflict that we feel in the story? Well, verse 5 shows us that Mary clearly receives the rebuke. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Clearly showing deference to Jesus as her son, knowing who he is. And then what begins is this picture of Jesus' response. And while we might know the end, let the tension build as we hear. Verse 6, it says, Nearby stood six stones of water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, And take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Now church recognize this. We've got Mary. Telling Jesus. That there is no wine. Jesus' response. Is to tell the servants to fill up jars with water. And to take it to the master of the banquet. And all of us go. What? What do you mean? How is water going to fix anything? To this point we have no idea. What is going to happen? We have no idea what Jesus is about to do. And yet in verse 9, we see very clearly that the water is no longer water. It says, the master of banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first. 
and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. Now you have saved the best for last. Now, recognize this. You've got this scene where the, the master of the banquet is probably pulling out his hair because there is no more wine. You've got a scene where frantic tension is kind of the norm. And in the midst of this, these servants are called to bring water to the master of the banquet. And here in this moment, as he tastes the water, it is no longer water, it is wine. And not only that, the text goes very clear out of the way to show us it's the best kind of wine you can drink. Did you catch that in verse, verse 10? Verse 10, the master says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after. This makes a lot of sense for anyone who's had a sip of alcohol. What the master of the banquet is trying to articulate is, after you drink a little bit, after people at parties would drink more and more and more, that's when you bring the cheaper wine out because people are less likely to know it's cheaper wine. People are less likely to actually taste and to be able to understand that, hey, this isn't the good stuff we had at the very beginning. But here, after the drinking has been done, now this wine introduced by Jesus is indeed the best wine. John wants us to clearly see that Jesus not only can kind of barely turn water into wine, but rather when Jesus does something, it's in abundance and it's in excellence. That when Jesus turns the water to wine, he turns it into the best wine you could ever drink in your life. And this really, verse 10, is the climax of our little episode that John gives us. It's this moment where we look as the master is drinking the water into wine, and yet we wait for his response, and his response is one of joy. It's one of abundant gladness. And what we see in our text so clearly is that John, in some sense, is trying to show us that Jesus is not only able to do the impossible, but he's also able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. That it's not only possible that Jesus might be able to do something completely unthinkable, and yet he can do it, he's willing to do it, and when he does it, it's in full abundance. Church, this is clearly a, a, a picture, is it not, of the grace of God in all of our lives. That God is not only able to show grace, he's willing to show grace. And when he does, he does so abundantly. That God's grace is that of abundance. And Jesus, as he steps into the scene in John chapter 2, is making a very loud declaration by his actions that he has come to give life and to give it abundantly. And here in this event, a wedding, one of great abundance and one of great joy, Jesus is doing just that. He's giving great grace, and great abundance. All too often, church, we can find ourselves settling for lesser lesser pleasures in this world. We can, as C.S. Lewis put it, settle for the joy of mud pies because we cannot begin to envision a vacation at sea. And we are all too often satisfied with the things of this world. We are all too often satisfied with the lesser, lesser pleasures which seek to draw us speaking or preaching abundance when in reality they are shallow and hollow. God is not only able to do the impossible, he does so in abundance as a picture of his glorious grace. But we have to ask the question, is that all that John has for us? Does John only have for us to see that Jesus 
did a really cool party trick that he was able to turn water into wine and this is really, really cool and so we just wanted to jot this one down or is there something more profound being spoken here? I would like to argue that I think John knows what he's doing and he's doing very particularly and very intentionally. And we see this as he ends this episode in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. John makes it clear that as he's writing this episode, and not only this episode, but his entire book, he's trying to show something about Jesus which is profound. Now, recognize this, church. We've gotten to the end of the story one of our tensions has been resolved. The wine's been made. The party is saved. Everyone goes on happily ever after. And yet there should be that part of our brains itching in the back where we say, what about that saying that Jesus said to his mother? What about the fact that his hour has not yet come? What do we make of that? And here in verse 11, we see very clearly that this, the act of turning water to wine, was the first of his miraculous signs that he performed. He also, using this sign, revealed his glory. And in result of this sign, his disciples placed their faith in him. So we ask the question, what is this a sign of? Why is it important that Jesus is giving something as a sign? I don't know about you, church, when I think of the word sign, I think of driving on 9094 in Chicago, where I'm from, and seeing the big green traffic signs that are overhead over the highway that say Chicago, or Milwaukee, or Indiana. That's why I picture when I think of a sign. And when you think of a sign, you recognize that the sign is pointing you to something. It is not in itself the reality but rather it's trying to point our eyes somewhere else. The signs on 1994 are not they themselves, Indiana and Milwaukee, but they point us to Indiana and Milwaukee. And here in our text, we ask the question, what is the point of this sign that Jesus is giving? And what is the point of him saying that his hour, his time, is not yet arrived? What I'd like to show is that Jesus, or John rather, wants to show that Jesus in this episode is a man who is revealed to his disciples in this moment to be the very son of God. He is the very son of God. But not only that, but that by his abundant act of grace and bestowing power of bringing joy to this wedding, he begins to point their eyes to a greater scene of tremendous joy. We would have to ask the question, wouldn't we? Has John spoken at all of what he's trying to show us about Jesus? And the answer is, yes, he has. If you flip back to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 12, John makes it very clear that he says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church, recognize in John 1.12, he gives you a hint as to the purpose of his whole book. He says, yet to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And so through the entire Gospel of John, we ask the question, why are, is he giving us certain episodes and certain pictures? And if we understand what John's purpose is, it's so that we might believe that Jesus really is the Son of God. That we might believe in his name and have life eternal. If I may, I'd like to give a spoiler alert to the, the Gospel of John. If you turn with me to the end of chapter 20. The end of chapter 20 of John, John gives us the final statement, which kind of concludes what he begins in 1 verse 12. In John chapter 20, we see very clear that Jesus, or John, is trying to tell us that Jesus is indeed the person that they've been looking for. Verse 30 of chapter 20, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, that section, John chapter 20, is widely known as John's purpose statement of the book. He is literally telling you outright, why am I writing the gospel? It's so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him as the Christ, you might have life in his name. And so here we ask the question, what is this a sign that's pointing to? It's a sign pointing to the reality that Jesus himself is the son of God and that he is one who is to be believed. We see this in how the disciples respond in faith in verse 11. But not only that, we begin to think of the imagery going on. Do you ever think as Jesus is sitting in this wedding, as he's fixing the water to wine issue, as he's hearing the concerns of those around him, do you ever think there's part of him that's thinking of a different wedding? I think John wants our eyes to begin to picture that this sign is a sign of God's abundant grace that Jesus is able to do these things, and yet it's pointing to his nature as the Son of God, his personhood, and ultimately to his work. Why is it that Jesus' time has not come? Well, it's because the cross has not yet come. When Jesus speaks of his hour or his time not yet arriving, he is always speaking of his crucifixion. And Jesus says, my time is not yet here. We begin to think of the crucifixion. We think of the time that is to come. And yet as we think on what Jesus did at the cross, we, always begin, we also begin to turn our eyes to what is still to come. I don't know about you, church. I think of texts like Revelation 19 where we see in the new heavens and new earth, we see the wedding of the Lamb and his bride, the church. When we look at a wedding like this in John chapter 2, we begin to think of a, gra a greater and a better wedding. That we begin to think of the wedding that has not yet taken place. The wedding between Jesus and us. That Jesus at this wedding, while he fixes this issue, is sitting around looking and thinking of how great the wedding to come will be. I wonder if we can even imagine just a little bit if there's part of Jesus who sits in the wedding almost like a soon-to-be bride would sit in another person's wedding, and he says, just wait. Just wait until the real wedding comes. Just wait for the joy that is yet to be revealed when that wedding is here. Just wait 
for the abundant joy that will be poured out on all of his children. The signs of Jesus point our eyes to a greater day and to a greater wedding. One where we will be met with our groom and we, the bride of Christ, will enjoy him forevermore. And so how might we respond to this as we leave this place, as we think on the truth of that great day? I have two closing applications for us. First, as we await the glorious day of that wedding that this text so clearly points our eyes to. First, let us RSVP. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, you need to recognize that that wedding is not a day that you are invited to. But you can be. You can be. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, recognize this, that his glorious, abundant grace is open to all of us, to all who should believe in his name, to trust him as the son of God. And if you would, you are RSVPing for that great day, that you will be in attendance for that wedding when he comes and rids the world of all evil and of all sin, when he makes all tears stop in eternal joy and fellowship with him will be forevermore. The purpose of John's book is so that we might see and believe. We need to RSVP for the wedding. John would have us believe in John chapter 20. We just saw the purpose statement. That here in chapter 2, that this wedding is a picture of abundancy of Christ's work and grace. And all throughout the book of John, as we see pictures of individuals who come to believe in Jesus as the Christ, John chapter 20 would have it to believe that he's turning the finger in the book towards the reader and is saying, it's true for you too. It's true for you too. If you will believe in Jesus as the Christ, you will have life in his name. But second, after we have RSVP'd, after we have trusted in Jesus as the Christ, may I encourage us all to await that day with eager bliss. That we might have an eagerness to us and a joyful anticipation of what might happen when Jesus comes again. That we would wait for that wedding day like it's the greatest news we've ever heard. Church, we should wait for Jesus and that wedding day similarly to how a bride waits for her wedding. We are the bride. We're awaiting the wedding. There should be a moment as we seek to count down the days, as we wait for the glorious return of our Lord and our Savior who loves us and gave himself for us, who every single day sustains us by his grace and daily intercedes on our behalf. We should be waiting with eagerness for that day. It should compel us in our days. As we go through the sufferings and trials of this world, we should be built up by the anticipation that one day Jesus will undo every wrong. That one day Jesus will come back in abundant, glorious display of grace. And we will enjoy the party with him forevermore. There will be an overflow of abundance and of his grace. It will be the best kind of party you can imagine. And it's coming. You can bet on it. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that here today, those of us who have come to know you as the Christ, the Son of God, 
we are so thankful that here in this moment we can trust and rest assured that that wedding day is coming. We can begin in eagerness to await the day when you return and we see our groom face to face. Lord, we pray, would you help us? Would you help us to look forward to that day? Would you help us to long for it? And may we be sustained by the grace of what is to come, that the glory to be revealed is not worth comparing with the present sufferings of this world. Help us, Lord, we pray, to see your glory manifested, and may it compel us to faith in you. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Amen.